Father, I pray that all strongholds and every lie that we're believing from Satan, God, in the blood of Jesus that proves his love for us, God, even me with all my blemishes. Father, I know my own mind and my own heart, and sometimes it's amazing to me that, that you could love even me. And Father, so wherever anybody is this morning, I pray that they would know your absolute never-ending love, God, and that it is so much bigger than we can even fathom or we could ever experience in human love. Father, you love me as I am, so make us more like Jesus, Father, because of that love, and in that love, we will fear nothing and that we will stop believing Satan's lies to us because you love us. God, we need you and we love you, and all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. I, uh, I must confess, I love winter, I love the snow, and so uh, I do get excited with my kids when they see the snow, kind of feels like December now, like Christmas time, and uh, we'll go out sledding, I'm sure, and uh, I've done winter camping before, and uh, uh, it's gotten quite cold on some of those adventures, and uh, if you want to talk more about winter camping, see me afterwards. Um, well, this morning, uh, we're coming now to our last chapter in our series in the book of James. And uh, the text for our study this morning is in verses 13 to 18. This brings us to uh, one of the most interesting and most encouraging sections of James's letter. James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because of all the practical wisdom it offers. And indeed, it is. And I believe that this paragraph, this passage this morning will be uh, very encouraging for everyone today. This is God's word. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed that it would not rain. And, did, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, just in the reading of that text, several questions come to my mind and as I studied this, and, and that's a good place to start whenever you're looking at a new passage or part of Scripture you're not as familiar with, to make a list of those questions and observations about that passage. And here's some of the questions that came to my mind, is that in verse 13, when he talks about suffering, what kind of suffering is he referring to? When he talks about the sick in verse 14, what kind of sickness does he have in mind? What do the elders of the church have to do with sickness and healing? Do, do they have more to offer in their prayers than other people? Why is oil a part of the process? That's kind of a curious part. Does this prayer of faith always restore the one who is sick and allow the Lord to raise him up? Is sickness the result of sin? Talks about confession of sin. Should we be confessing and telling each other our personal sins? And if so, what, to what extent? And what is being healed from those confessions? Uh, so as I, as I thought through those questions and studied this passage, uh, I believe those questions are answered, and I hope this will be a very encouraging and uplifting uh, message for everyone this morning. And before we work our way through this, though, it's important to understand context. The key to any interpretation of any passage of the Bible is the context in which it's in. You look at the whole book, you look at the chapters before and after, the paragraphs before and after, and the idea is to get an understanding of the environment of thought that that passage sits in so that you can properly understand it. For example, if I were to say to you in the summer here in Iowa, I was sitting in the backyard the other evening and there were millions of mosquitoes out there. Well, you would immediately recognize the millions of mosquitoes as a figure of speech, right? There was just a lot of mosquitoes out there. Well, in the cold Iowa winter, someone might say, I'm freezing. We don't assume that their body temperature has dropped down to 32 degrees, 
uh, just simply means rather they feel very cold. And when we come to Scripture, when we see stuff like when, Je when Jesus is called the Lamb of God, we understand what is meant by the Lamb of God. So when we read Scripture, it's important to read it, for the most part, literally, generally speaking, unless we come across obvious metaphors like that. And when we do that, we look at the grammar, we look at the context, we look at the culture, we look at the history of it and its normal language. And so when we come to James here, let me see, set the scene for this paragraph. It's important to reflect on what's gone on in James so far to help us understand this passage. The book of James was likely the first book of the New Testament to be written. Do you realize that? It's, uh, most people think that it was written about 15 years after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this was early church. And what we see right away in the early church in chapter 1 is that the Jewish believers that started out in Jerusalem are scattered abroad. It says he's writing to the Jewish believers who are scattered abroad. And when we look in the book of Acts, which is kind of our book of church history, we see in chapter 7 and 8 how after the stoning of Stephen that the believers were scattered throughout the Mediterranean area. And in Acts 12, there was persecution under Herod Agrippa I. And we'd, we call this the dispersion or the diaspora. And so these believers have been forced out into the Mediterranean world because of hostility to the name of Christ. And so they're under a lot of stress and trials and hardships. And chapter 1 opens up telling them they're to learn how to be patient in their trials, to seek wisdom from above to persevere through these trials. These are severe trials, and they need wisdom. They need help. They're under persecution. And so James is writing to them in the midst of this stress and hostility and hardships to be faithful in the midst of that, to be patient. And so James is calling his readers to endure it all, without being unstable, without doubting, to look past the pain and the suffering and the persecution to the glory, to the crown of life, as he calls it in chapter 1, which is eternal life. And more than any other book in the New Testament, James urges believers to act like God's people. The pages of James are filled with direct commands to be doers of the word, to pursue a life of holiness, to act the part. And so for James, a faith that does not produce real-life change is a faith that is worthless. Faith without works is dead, as he said. And so living out our faith is, is so important, especially during trials and hardships as they were going through. And, and really our actions through those trials, through that suffering and hardship, the way we treat the less fortunate, the way we speak and relate to others, the role that money plays in how we live our lives, our faithfulness and perseverance while suffering, all these things that this letter from James has talked about, if we do these things, they really validate that we have genuine living faith in our walk with Christ. So now when we come to verses 13 to 18 of chapter 5, the, the context is a people under trial, persecution, and great hardship. And at the beginning of the chapter, we saw how one of their trials was oppression from the rich. Brother Allen talked about that last week. The rich were getting richer on the backs of the poor, and they weren't even paying their laborers fairly or even at all in some cases. And then in verses 7 to 11, James exhorted the believers to be patient and faithful in that time of oppression and hardship. And I'm just going to read those verses now as a sort of a prelude as we move into verses 13 to 18. James 5, 7 to 11. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So these verses that were to encourage those who are being oppressed by the rich among their other trials, James gives them those three examples of patience, the farmer waiting for the fruit of the earth. Uh, so too, we can, have en we can endure oppression in light of the coming of Christ, which is imminent. And then secondly, the prophets who suffered patiently in the name of the Lord. And thirdly, Job. And, and I thought about Job, and wow, Job, you know, you, you look in just those first two chapters of the book of Job, and you see wh someone who is called the most righteous man on the earth, and and you see these horrible trials that come upon him, losing uh, all of his children in a horrible windstorm, all his livestock and livelihood, and even getting a horrible skin disease. 
And for many chapters, then you, you see insult upon injury as three supposed friends come along and, and blame this all on his personal sin, which wasn't true. But he persevered. And in the end, we see Job in a closer relationship with God than ever before. We see the Lord's compassion and mercy, and God restored it all to him, even more than he had before, and gave him a long life. Job, what, a, what an example. And as we come to this passage now, uh, we have three questions and three commands that James gives us. First of all, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him in the name of the Lord. Let's look at that first one. Is anyone among you suffering? As I said a moment ago, these, these Jewish believers are, are suffering great hardships, physical hardships, emotional hardships, spiritual hardships. And without being too simplistic with the answer for every kind of suffering, the most important thing is that when we're faced with such trouble, we do what James says here, we, we pray. The answer is prayer. James is asking here, are you having trouble in life? Then who are you talking to about it? Are, are you talking to God? Whatever you're suffering, pray about it. Many of these Jewish believers lost everything in their exile. And then they get this letter from James that tells them to pray during their suffering. Don't just talk about prayer. We don't just go to a meeting for prayer. We don't just hang around people who pray. It says, make sure you pray. Make sure you pray. Dr. Tony Evans, the first African-American to earn a doctorate in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he went on to teach evangelism and homiletics and black church studies at DTS, served as a pastor to a large church in Dallas for about four decades, and now he served as the MBA chaplain to the Dallas Mavericks for about 30 years. He had this to say about Christian commitment to prayer. The truth is, we as Christians love to talk about prayer. We love to hear people talk about answered prayer. We love to hear about Christians from the past who had unbelievable prayer lives and saw God do wonderful things. We love everything about prayer except the actual discipline of prayer. It's kind of convicting, isn't it? Maybe we could each do a self-check this morning. Compare the time we spent in prayer for the past month, six months, year, to the time we spent on other priorities in life, entertainment, whatever it is. If you're feeling a bit guilty about that, I confess I am too. This is the climax of this letter from James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. And at the heart of a believer's ability to endure the trials and hardships of life, he says, is a strong commitment to prayer. We need to be a people committed to prayer. You know, it's so simple. It's so direct. And somehow we've lost it somewhere along the line. We need to pray. We need to do it individually. We need to, as it says in this verse, let him pray. We need to also do it in our families. We need to do it in our small groups and, and as a church. Let me share some other scriptures with you to encourage, that encourage us to pray and cast our burdens and our cares on him. Let, let these soak in for a moment. In 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says, Casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. Isn't that an encouraging verse? You know, there's many, many psalms we could choose from where the psalm writers pleading with God for help in times of trouble. And I picked one here in Psalm 55, 22, where it says, Cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. Isn't that encouraging? You may remember the story, the account of Jonah and the whale, right? And Jonah was sent to, by God to a heathen city to save those people. He wanted them to go and preach to this wicked city and, and have them turn from their sins and turn to God. God really wanted to save them, and he wanted Jonah to be his man to do it, to go. And then and when we read the story, we see Jonah sailing in the opposite direction on the Mediterranean Sea. And so God caused a storm on the sea. Uh, they had to throw Jonah overboard to save them. Um, and then it says that God appointed a giant fish, maybe a whale, to swallow him and swim for three days back to that shore where he came from and, and wanted him to still go to that city. And uh, it's an incredible story. Read it in the book of Jonah. And while in the pit of that whale, in the darkness, in the stench, as you can imagine, the hopelessness and despair, Jonah cries out to God in chapter 2, verse 7, and he says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. You know that imagery of being in that dark, empty situation of despair in the whale? Maybe figuratively we're going through that. You know, are you in the pit, so to speak, this morning? In that dark place where it, where it stinks, where it's hopeless, where you're in despair? 
And the encouragement is to cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus like Jonah in the middle of that pit. I'm going to read Philippians 4, 6 to 7 in a, a newer translation. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And what that says, simply said, don't just worry about it. Pray about it. And be thankful for the blessings in your life, right? There's a hymn I grew up hearing and singing here in our traditional Breaking the Bread service called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And just listen to the words. They're so appropriate. It could almost be titled, Take It to the Lord in Prayers. That phrase is repeated throughout it. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Blessed Savior, thou hast promised, thou wilt all our burdens bear. May we ever, Lord, be bringing all to thee in earnest prayer. Soon in glory, bright unclouded, there will be no need for prayer. Rapture, praise, and endless worship will be our sweet portion there. Isn't that neat? If we're suffering in some form and not praying about it, we're really missing out. Take it to the Lord in prayer. I couldn't say it any better than that. Well, secondly here, his second question was, is anyone cheerful? Anyone among you cheerful? We can always be joyful in all circumstances in the Lord. You remember in chapter 1, in verses 2 and 3, where James right away says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We can and should have that abiding kind of joy, even in the face of trials and hardships, like these Jewish believers are going through. But I also believe James is using this word cheerful uh, in a way that goes beyond that abiding joy. This is referring to a kind of cheerfulness where your soul is well, where, where you feel happy. And some of these Jews he was writing to that were dispersed all over for, and persecuted still had some courage, still, still were in good spirits. They were cheerful. And the only other place in the original Greek word here uh, used for cheerful appears, and, and I'm not a Greek expert, but you can I use Vine's expository dictionary for Old and New Testament words, and you can see where all those words are used in the Bible and what context they're in, and that's very helpful. I'd encourage that in your study, Vine's expository dictionary. And the only other place it appears in the New Testament is Acts 27. Acts 27 is a curious place to find the word cheerful, because if you look there in Acts 27, that's the story of the Apostle Paul on a ship to Rome, and they're in a terrible storm for weeks, and they're about to be shipwrecked. What a time to be cheerful, huh? <laughs> And uh, it's an inner attitude of cheerfulness. When that emotion is experienced, James says, don't forget to sing praise to God. Let him sing psalms. If you're in trouble, pray to the Lord. If you're happy and you know it, and you really want to show it, sing praise to the Lord. You might have thought I was going to say, clap your hands. Maybe we could do that too. But. You remember the story in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are in the Philippian jail because they cast out a demon out of a girl that was making her masters a lot of money. And you remember when they were in that inner dungeon with their feet clamped in the stocks, what they did? Well, verse 25 says that Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening. <laughs> you notice that? They began to sing. What an incredible testimony they had through that, too. You see, it says at midnight, the Lord sent an earthquake to break open in that prison and free Paul and Silas. And their prayers and singing must have had such an influence on the other prisoners. Well, they deserved to be there, and they would have gladly taken the opportunity to escape on any other day. The testimony that Paul and Silas had on them through their prayers and singing was such that they did not escape. They stayed there. And it was, had such an impact on the jailer himself that he and his whole family were converted to Christ and baptized. What an amazing story. What a, if they could be so cheerful in such dire circumstances... But, you know, that's, that's how it is with Christians, isn't it? 
When we gather together, we can't help singing. Uh, that's what we do. The Muslims don't sing. The Buddhists don't sing. Christians, when we gather together, we sing, right? You know, I bet if Jesus were here physically, visibly in our church service leading us, or in our homes and our family leading us, you know what I'm sure he would make sure to have us do is to sing, right? You can see even before the cross, the night before the cross is the Last Supper, when they're leaving there to go out, they sing. Uh, we, we have a family worship time at some of our meals. Uh, I want it to be more regular. It seems like once or twice a week is all we get done with our schedule and sometimes cooperation. And I, I read a Bible story for maybe 10 minutes and we pray for a few minutes and then we, we sing a song. I let the kids pick the songs and it's fun. Uh, I get the request for my lighthouse kind of regularly, particularly from one enthusiastic young boy. And uh, sometimes I have to encourage them to think of something else. But uh, it's fun, and we just put it on YouTube and let the music and the video play, and we sing along. I encourage you to do that in your families. We need to be individuals, but also families who pray and sing together. That's important. We sing because we have joy in the Lord and because we're cheerful. Our singing together here on Sunday morning is more than just a prelude to the preaching. It's important. Singing matters, period. And so if you're, if you're suffering a hardship, and, you know, sometimes, frankly, it's kind of hard to feel like singing when you're suffering at those times. And that's okay if that's you. You know, just let the music minister to you and let the congregational singing lift you up. Not everyone's an outwardly expressive person. I'm not, but uh, don't worry about that. Just sing from the heart. And if you're cheerful, if you're happy and you know it, Feel free to sing out. Maybe clap your hands too. Well, third question from James this morning is, is anyone among you sick? And he says, let him call on the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is where the passage gets kind of interesting. We haven't really taught about this special prayer ministry of elders, at least that I can remember. And so perhaps some here don't even know about what's happening here in this passage, how we apply it today. So I want to work through it with you this morning and see if we can get some clarity on it. And I feel it'll be a really encouraging passage. I'm really excited to teach it this morning. First of all, the word sick here can also be translated weak or feeble. And it pictures a time in someone's life where hardships are overwhelming. And they need to do more than just pray themselves. They need help and encouragement from the spiritually strong. In-person prayer from the spiritual leaders of the church. And as I read several commentaries on this passage, I found a number of viewpoints on who the sick are and what the oil is about. It's kind of interesting how many different interpretations you can have of a single passage. But in the end, I think we can simplify all of it and have something very understandable and relatable for everyone. Some of those viewpoints are that this sickness is, uh, is a physical condition caused by physical persecution from the world. And, and for many of James's readers, that could very well have been the case. On many occasions in the New Testament, we read in the book of Acts and elsewhere that believers were beaten for their faith. Secondly, another, some Bible teachers say that this is a severe physical illness or condition where the person can't get out of bed. That's how we typically think of it. And the elders are literally praying over that person in their bed. Thirdly, some Bible teachers say that this is not a physical sickness at all. The word means weak. And so this is a spiritual trial in the context of the book of James that is overwhelming the person. And I'm sure that was the case for many of the readers of James's letter. And certainly today we know how life's hardships can certainly affect us in a spiritual, emotional way where you feel beaten down and overwhelmed and oppressed on a spiritual level. Uh, and some Bible teachers say this is a physical sickness as a punishment by the Lord for their sin in their life. And we see this as a possible reason in verse 15 when they're told to confess their sin. So definitely a valid viewpoint. In fact, I, I find all four valid, so my view is that all four are acceptable. I think it could be any one of these. I don't think we have to choose. It could be the physically sick. It could be the beaten for their faith. It could be the spiritually downtrodden or punishment from the Lord for sin. The point is that whatever the sickness is, the weakness is, whether it's a severe physical sickness, a beaten body from persecution, overwhelming spiritual trials, or a punishment from the Lord for sin, there is a serious situation that needs the help of the spiritually strong in the church to help them through that time. And it says here that the elders are the ones to cry out to. The elders are the spiritually strong in this passage. And this isn't going to be a sermon on church government this morning, but I, I do want to say just a few things briefly about the elders and who they are in the church. 
This is, like I said, the first book written in the New Testament, 15 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So this is early church. And what you see in the early church, the first mention of church leadership is that the elders are leading in the church. They're the pastoral leaders in the church who the sick call out to, to pray over them. And so James uh, and says, call on the elders. Let them call on the elders. The elders are the spiritual leaders. Uh, in other scriptures, they're called overseers or bishops. They can be equated with pastors, so we call them elders or pastors. That's really their responsibility, pastoring, shepherding the local church. Acts 6 talks about the church leaders, and, and you see that they're to be devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word. That's what they do. And everywhere you read about elders, you see it's a plurality of elders. It's, it's a group, a team of men serving together in the leadership of the church. And that's why we have a team of elders. We call ourselves elder-led here because we're not because of our tradition or history necessarily, but because we're simply trying to be faithful to the Word of God where it says elders, appoint elders in the churches. And so uh, we also look at scriptures like uh, Acts, Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul is meeting for the elders in the Ephesian church for the last time before he leaves them. He spent quite a bit of time there. And he says, Therefore, take, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. So you see that pastoral role. And, and 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 talk a lot about elders in the church. Elders are to be blameless men, godly men, men able to teach the word of God. They lead the flock. They feed the word to the flock. They protect the flock from false teaching. They care for the flock. And uh, a great book, if you're interested in the qualifications and role of an elder, is called Biblical Eldership by Alex Strzok. Uh, I admire Alex quite a bit. He's got a great book there. It's widely considered the book on eldership. Um, if you want to read that, I, I remember in my 20s, the elders here at that time took some of us men along with them through a study of this book, and it was very, very good. Now, getting back to our passage, we see that the elders are the spiritually strong who have a special ministry, we're told here, of representing the church in prayer over the sick. The weak go to the strong to draw on their strength in the time of need. So what does this look like? The, the, the sick, the weak, initiate this by calling on the elders to pray over them. <clears throat> this could be by someone else on that person's behalf too. It's an individual thing. We don't do it as a public uh, service. It's a private meeting in the home of the weak one or the hospital or maybe here in the church as we've done sometimes uh, if you're physically able to be there. And the elders, multiple elders, come and do a few things. It says they pray over the weak, they anoint with oil, and they help restore the believer if they have personal sin issues. So firstly, he says, let them pray over him. It's really a special ministry of the elders. These broken people call out to the elders for help when their struggle is great. Maybe they don't even have the strength to call out to God on their own. And they need that pastoral ministry of those righteous men who can lift up prayers on their behalf, carry them on their backs. I've been a privilege to be a part of those few, uh, some of those special prayer times here in the ministry here. I can think back to praying with Dick Goldner in his last days with cancer and what a special time in his home that was. I can think back to uh, praying over Sam Webb in the basement of Raleigh Clarkson's house at an elders meeting and just what a man of faith that was he is. And, uh, it, you know, he suffered a brain trauma here in this building falling down the steps over there, so be careful on those steps. But... We, we had a special prayer time over him, and I can think of a couple other times here in the church with some women in need, and, and, and what a beautiful time of ministry that is. It's so encouraging for the person, but I almost feel being on the other end of it sometimes just so encouraging for the person being there and doing the praying. We, we invite those here in need to call on the elders. If this sermon leads us as an elder team to spending more of our ministry time in this special prayer ministry instead of other things, I think that would be a good thing, don't you? My dad, who served as an elder close to 30 years here, told me uh, in recent years that those prayer visits during his time as an elder were the most rewarding times in his ministry here. Isn't that neat? All the things you go through in leadership, and, and that was the most special time. We invite those here to call on us. If the, if, uh, I, and I've asked the elder team to just be available afterwards. Maybe the sermon, you, maybe you're really suffering in a hardship, and it's just unbearable, overwhelming. Uh, we'll, we'll be available here afterwards. You can come to us. Um, now, secondly, the elders anoint the person with oil in the name of the Lord. And the first question I had when you, when you might have when you see that is, what's the deal with the oil? You mean they, they come and oil you? 
you know, what kind of church is this? You know, and what in the world kind of oiling is this? And there's two main views associated with it. First of all, uh, one view is that it's a medicinal anointing with oil. Oil was used in biblical times to soothe and bring healing to wounds. They would literally pour olive oil on that wound and maybe massage the muscles of that person to soothe, bring healing to the external wound on that person. And maybe that person had been literally persecuted by their employer or by someone else for their faith in Christ, and they came in with a wound to the elders, and, um, and those men would pour some olive oil, they'd odd on the wound and rub it and uh, soothe that person's wounds. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10? A Jewish man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits, uh, stripped of his clothes, beaten, left half dead on the side of the road. And a couple of Jewish le religious leaders passed on by. But then this Samaritan, from a group of the people the Jewish people despised, came and he saw the man, it says he had compassion for him. And, and he, took him, he took him home, it says, and it says that he soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine as an antiseptic, and bandaged them. So he took care of that man until he got better. The Samaritan man showed him mercy. And Jesus commanded his hearers to do the same. So, so in this view, the elders are to offer physical care and help along with their prayers for the physically wounded, the seriously sick or bedridden believer. <clears throat> Secondly, it could be a ceremonial anointing with oil. In this view, the elder pastors put a little dab of oil on that person's forehead a little better than oil poured over you, maybe you're thinking. And that's sort of reminiscent of the Holy Spirit. It's a ceremonial anointing. And throughout the Old Testament, you see this. You see how the, one of the primary uses of oil was to set people or things apart for a special purpose for God's use. You know, you remember Jacob when he poured oil over that stone where God first met him in prayer, first spoke to him. Remember how oil was used to consecrate, dedicate the priests, their garments, the tabernacle, all, all in it to God's service. And and kings were set apart by anointing with oil. Remember Samuel pouring oil over the head of King David, young, young King David, not quite a king yet. So in this view, when the sick person has summoned the elders for prayer, the elders as the official representatives of the church, they meet with that person to pray for healing, and they anoint with oil in the name of the Lord to, to kind of visually aid, uh, visually and physically dedicate the sick person to the care and healing of the Lord. Says so it's applied in the name of the Lord. So, so it helps that sick or weak person too to, to remember that he or she is that special object of the Lord's care. And uh, well, what do you do then? So <clears throat> some go to the original Greek language of the New Testament and find two different words for anointing. And one says, uh, well, one word is for ceremonial, one's for medicinal. And the one in James here is physical, medicinal. So that's what it is. But the uh, problem I have with that is that word's also used in the Old Testament for ceremonial anointing. So I don't think you can make a clear case either way going back to the original language. But in the end, what about today? To oil or not to oil? That is the question. Well, while it was a good healing agent to external wounds in the first century, if we really wanted to apply that principle of a physical healing, the principle for today would be for the elders to make sure that sick person is getting the best medical care possible, right? Because we, we wouldn't uh, apply oil in the same way they did back then for that reason. They, they just wouldn't make sense in our 21st century age of high-tech surgeries and uh, pharmaceutical drugs and hospitals and clinics and all that. And, well, we certainly would want to make sure the person is getting proper medical care and the right medical care. So, so I believe in, a, in a, an appropriate way to apply this teaching on anointing with oil today is, is in a ceremonial or met metaphorical sense. I, I like the ceremonial dedication view in, in the 21st century because that oil is used to, that used to be used to heal wounds and soothe the body is a great picture of what happens when the elders pray in faith for healing. There's a metaphorical sense in which the oil can mean that we want to stimulate and encourage and massage the spirit and warm the heart and provide strength to the weak-hearted person. You know, not, not everyone suffering hardships has a physical, needs a physical healing anyway, so many of these believers were suffering in spirit, and they're wounded and broken and crushed in spirit. And, you know, and it might be both a physical and spiritual problem. They often go together. You know, the person with a physical ailment often gets discouraged and depressed, uh, especially when there's a prolonged condition or prognosis for near-term mortality. And so those often go together. So our practice here at Creekside is to apply a dab of oil, olive oil to the forehead. Nord Metzler brings our supply of oil. Um, I saw it on, uh, uh, I don't think I have the picture up on this one, but yeah, there. The, 
christianbook.com, 349, if we need a replenishment of our supply, Norm. And uh, we do it as a symbolic reference, though. We do it in the name of the Lord. It's a special act of our placing trust in the Lord, the only one who has the power and authority to heal, right? And nothing is too great for him to do. And so we trust and we pray and anoint with oil, as these verses tell us to do, because we believe the Lord can heal and restore the sick, the weak, the broken, the downtrodden. And verse 15 says, And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up. This, uh, you look in that Vines Expository Dictionary again, and the, the word here for raise him up usually refers to a physical healing, but in this case, in James 5, it says that it refers both to a physical treatments and figurative healings of spiritual healing. So in cases of emotional and spiritual weakness and suffering, these people need healing too. So a, a few comments on healing here. Uh, I don't want to get derailed on my sermon on healings, but uh, just a few quick things here. One is that sometimes the answer is yes when we pray for a healing. And we love it when that's our answer, when it, the prayer is answered in the way that we hoped and expected it to be answered. Sometimes the answer is wait. You know, there's no guaranteed formula that if you send the right men and they pray in the right way, that there's a guaranteed instantaneous miraculous healing. That, that's, we don't take that. And, and if you do believe it's all on the faith of the person, you'd have to say it's not the faith of the person needing the healing. It's here based on the faith of the person praying, right? So it's not likely there's a guaranteed formula here. Sometimes the answer is wait. Sometimes uh, we pray in faith for a healing that doesn't happen for a long time. It happens later on. It doesn't mean we didn't have enough faith. If we all believed it was all based just on our faith, we'd become pretty disillusioned with Christianity pretty quick. It doesn't say how and when we're healed here. In many cases, when it's a, whether it's a physical condition or emotional or spiritual weakness, it can take some time. And sometimes the Lord uses a prolonged trial of sickness to build godly character in our lives. The Lord in his sovereignty often has purposes that are greater than ours. Think of Job. I mean, he had no idea that behind the scenes God was proving his faith to Satan on the spiritual realm. And Job couldn't see the future. God had a plan to heal and restore him. He, he couldn't see that. It was going to be a long while of suffering first. But all glory to God because he had the purpose in that wait. You know, sometimes we need to persist in prayer for a long time. You remember the story Jesus told of the neighbor who was in need of bread for a visitor? And uh, he went to him at midnight, maybe because he was embarrassed by the whole thing. And he, and he knocked boldly on, the, on his friend's door at midnight. Can I have some bread? And uh, you know what, Luke, in Luke 11, this is right after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says in verses 8 to 10, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. So Jesus tells us sometimes we just need to keep asking. We need to be persistent in asking God uh, to work in our lives and answer our prayers according to his perfect will and timing. We, we can have confidence that he'll do it according to his will and in a perfect way. And if we continue asking, we're, we're, we're also fellowshipping with him. We're yielding to him. We're having those times of trusting in him. And that grows our faith, doesn't it? Sometimes a delayed answer to prayer even stirs up more gratitude and thankfulness at the end of it. Think back to that time where you had to pray for a long time for, for that marriage to be restored or for that cancer to be healed. And, and it was at some later point. And, you, and you're just so much more thankful for that time you had to wait and then you saw the Lord answer. So all to say, we, don't wanna, we encourage you not to rip this verse out of context and use it as a proof text for instantaneous, miraculous healings. We certainly believe that every time we pray, God has the power to heal. He has authority to heal. He could heal right then if he wanted to. But ultimately, when we pray, we leave it in the hands of the Lord, according to his will. The third answer we might get is no. Sometimes it's not the Lord's will to heal. We always ask in faith, in the name of Christ, believing we shall receive. But again, we need to remember that God is a sovereign God. His purposes are higher and greater than ours. You remember the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh? He said he prayed three times to have it removed. We don't know exactly what it was. Some say it was maybe poor eyesight from malaria. We don't know exactly. But, but the idea was Paul was a godly, righteous man. And his prayer wasn't answered in his time of need. I mean, he healed hundreds of people in his ministry lifetime from their sicknesses and diseases. And, and he didn't have an answer for his. God's answer was no. He wanted him to suffer with it. And maybe it was to keep him humble. 
I mean, he had received such amazing revelations from God. Uh, maybe it was to keep him humble. We just leave the results in the hands of the Lord, whether it's yes or wait or no. And uh, my uncle was a missionary. He was in Africa earlier this summer. He said he found a new answer that he hadn't considered before. He says, I knew about yes and no and wait, but uh, he was traveling out there, and they have this kind of souped-up Trunda vehicle that's for the bush and carrying loads of Bibles and pharmaceuticals to needy people in the villages. And, and uh, one part broke down, a specialized part in this Trunda, and he had gotten it two years ago at this place. He went there, and he thought, there's no way I'm going to find this part in the middle of Africa, in Nigeria. And uh, he mentioned it to the mechanic, and I said, actually, two years ago, when, when I got that for you, I ordered a second one. And uh, he had it right there for him. And so my uncle said, I, I learned a new answer to prayer. I answered it two years ago. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Well, he says in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. You know, we, we always pray in faith. Uh, we always pray believing, and then we leave the results with the Lord. Now, one possible reason for this person's severe sickness, and he mentions it here in verse 15, is, is sin. He <clears throat> says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James leaving open the possibility here that sin may have caused the person's physical or spiritual condition. I mean, most people aren't even willing to consider the possibility of that, but it's a possibility. God does discipline his children with physical sickness for sin. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul is admonishing the believers at Corinth for taking communion with sin in their lives. They're taking it in an unworthy, in an unworthy manner, he said. In the verses 30 and 32, he says, For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, meaning death. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. And when you read that letter of 1 Corinthians in the Bible, you read about people in that church of Corinth that were involved in petty fighting, boastful divisions and lawsuits and gross immorality. And so in chapter 11, that letter, God tells us that God disciplined some of those people for that with physical weakness and sickness. And maybe for some it was so bad, even death. So in the book of James, we, we've kind of seen references to those kind of situations too with people. We've seen in chapter 3 how he mentions those who have jealousy and selfish ambition quarrels and conflicts in chapter 4, lust for worldly comforts and possessions in chapter 4, discrimination against the poor in chapter 2, complaints against each other in chapter 4, a lack of practical Christian unity, faith, and love in chapter 1 and 2. So James is saying that in some cases, sin may be the underlying cause of that person's physical sickness. So in our elder visits, one thing we always ask with a gentle spirit is, is if there is any sin that needs to be confessed. If that person does have sin and makes a genuine confession, that, that person will be forgiven by God and restored with God and with the church and may even receive that physical healing. And uh, we do want to be careful though to make sure everyone understands this verse says, if he has committed sins. I, I recognize that many godly men and women of faith and prayer suffer serious sickness and hardship for other reasons than sin. But if there is sin, it's important to confess that sin. Important to confess it. And this confession is not just for elder visits. Verse 16, speaking now to the congregation at large, Con confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The church is to model what they see in their leaders. It's not just a ministry for elders. The elders do have a special prayer ministry we're talking about here with the oil and everything. But, but all believers are to be involved in a prayer ministry and confession of sin. We need to be in relationships with each other where, where we're open enough that we can confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. I don't know if this really means that you have to pour out every bit of garbage in your life, but it does mean that we don't hide our evil. Sin wants us alone. Did you know that? Sin wants to isolate us. It doesn't want anybody to know who shouldn't know. And as long as it's private and secret, you can nurse it and nurture it and feed it. And God wants it open and out, exposed among people who love you, confessed, so that person can be restored spiritually. I think back to King David in the Old Testament, a man after God's own heart, but he had, he had some sin lapses in his life, and he had a time where he kept this serious sin a hidden matter. And listen to what he writes here in Psalm 32 about what was going on inside him during that time he kept it in. Psalm 32, verses 3 to 4. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, 
through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Have you ever felt like that? When you, when you kept it in, when you were keeping that sin hidden, it just ate you up. That's what happened to David here. So we need to open up and share and seek forgiveness with one another. That, that's kind of a, a mutual honesty among believers. We, we open, we share our needs and confess our sins to help each other in our struggle with sin. To help each other. Now, uh, not all prayers are equal, and I'm kind of winding down here to the end. And uh, in the next few verses, we just learn that there's some prayers that are very, very powerful. And James tells us why they're powerful and gives us a brief, ama amazing illustration of that. Verse 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. You know, so far, if I were to summarize this passage today, we see the... Uh, the Lord calling us to be a praying people, a praying church, and, and to be a singing and caring church. But now in these last few verses, I see one more thing. I see that God wants us to be a holy church, a holy church. God wants us to be a praying church, a singing church, a caring church, and a holy church. These verses say that there's powers in the prayer, power in the prayers of the righteous, in the righteous. The prayers of a righteous man are very strong. And you know what that tells me is that there's that the prayer of a person allowing sin in their life, unchecked, have weak prayers. You know, we need to take sin seriously. And notice that these prayers are fervent. The phrase here literally translates, he prayed with prayer. Elijah prayed earnestly with fervor. You know, firstly, we need to ask, do our prayers come from a righteous heart? And secondly, do we pray, and not just pray, but really pray. Pray with fervor. Those are the kind of powerful prayers he's talking about here. And just think about this example he gives us about Elijah. If we were to time travel back to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17, and we read about this Elijah, this prophet of God. We read about how he was a normal man like us. He, he got hungry, he was tired, he was worn out and discouraged sometimes. A man with a nature just like ours, James says. And at one point, this godly prophet prayed a prayer. He prayed that it wouldn't rain on the land of Israel as a judgment for their sinfulness. And uh, you see that the, it didn't rain for three and a half years. That's serious. And we don't read about the prayer in 1 Kings. It's assumed he's a, he's a man like us, same kinds of struggles and prayers, uh, hardships like us, but he, but he prays and, and he's a righteous man and his prayers were so powerful that it didn't rain for three and a half years. And then he prayed again and the, and the rains came and the earth produced its fruit. It's just an amazing story. 1 Kings 17 and 19. So he's, it's a man praying in the will of God, a righteous man praying in the will of God. And, and I love how he prays at the end again for the rain to come. And that's a, it's a wonderful picture, and we'll kind of close with this. When, when he prays again for the rain to come and it restores the earth, uh, it reminds me of that time when it's talking about here when the elders come out with that special prayer ministry and, and pray over that person and they're, and they're, they're restored, maybe healed. There, there's refreshment and healing on that person, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually, maybe physically. And what a wonderful time that is. And, and I just want to close with this thought. Isn't it nice to know that if you suffer, if you get sick, if you're going through some kind of relationship issue or other trouble, the Lord wants you to be comforted. Isn't that nice? What a precious doctrine, the Lord, that the Lord is tender to you, that he loves you, that he designed the church to be a praying, caring place for each other. That's just wonderful. And we can do a lot of things. We can pray for that person. And don't just say you're going to pray for them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Call them on the phone. How are you doing? Pray for them. Send cards, visitation, meals, small groups serving and caring for each other, babysitting. I don't know. We need to be a prayer. We must be a church of prayer and a church that cares for the sick and the suffering. We can't lose that ever. We need to increase in that all the more. We do a good job, I think, but we need to increase in that. We want to live like Jesus. We want to pray like Jesus. We want to sing like Jesus. We want to kneel by the suffering brother or sister in Christ and pray for them. And if that's you that are here this morning, I invite you to stay afterwards and, and talk to us elders. We'd love to pray for you. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I, I just thank you for your great love and care for your church. Thank you that such beautiful illustrations are provided to us throughout the Bible of of faithful men like Elijah and Job who 
encourage us to remain faithful and patient in times of trial and suffering and hardship, especially in those times of uh, physical sickness where the prognosis is not good and there might not be much hope. We thank you that you've provided a way among the body of believers for that person to be encouraged and lifted up in spirit and, and maybe even healed physically. And I just pray that there are some here suffering hardships this morning like that, that they would call on the elders of the church and that we might have a, a mutual time of, uh, of caring for each other, encouraging each other, and blessing each other through prayers. May this church be a church that is holy and righteous and that uh, has a fervor for prayer, that we might pray for one another diligently and, and uh, all to the glory of God. We just want the Lord Jesus to be glorified among us, and we commit our body of believers to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take communion now and, uh, and just think of how the Lord cared for us in our greatest time of need. We, we were enemies of God, and we deserve his eternal punishment. And in his great care and love for us, he came down and died a death on the cross, a righteous death on the cross for our sins to make us right with him. In that thought, let's take the bread and the, and the juice and the, and the worship songs here. God, we, uh, we are here before you now. Father, as we are, we surrender everything that we are to you. Father, whatever there is in our life that we are holding on to, that we need to let go of, that we need to give to you, that we need to trust you uh, to take care of, God. You want us well, and you want it to be well with our soul. And so, Father, I pray that every person here this morning would be able to say, it is well with my soul because I have surrendered everything, everything into the care of an almighty God who loves me no matter what. God, we love you, and we need you. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. We're so thankful that you're here. We'll see you next week.